Okay, uh, we talk about world poverty. You uh, might say, hey, we're approaching Christmas. It's kind of a sad topic to talk about during uh, Christmas, but um, the reality is there's probably no better month to talk about world poverty than December. Uh, most of us have probably started our shopping, and uh, some of us, you at least got it planned. Maybe some of you are done, uh, but we... In North America, we love Christmas and we spend a ton of money at Christmas time. Uh, we spend so much money in North America on Christmas that the amount of money that we spend on Christmas could feed every single hungry person on this planet for three years straight. Uh, I mean, we are fat with riches. And as I always say, it doesn't matter if you couldn't pay your rent last week in Light of what happens in this world, you are amazingly rich. And I want to talk today more so about uh, the world's poor, not North American poor. Uh, because there is a difference. We, we are to help the North American poor, but the category of North American poor and the world's poor, it is very different. In fact, most of the world's poor would look at the North American poor and would say that is a very comfortable lifestyle compared to what they're living and so we need to be serving both, but I want to focus in on the world's poverty today. Uh, as you heard, that was the president of uh, World Vision there, uh, Richard Stearns, and he said that every day, 26,500 kids under the age of five die from preventable poverty. Uh, that's, a, that's a huge number when you think about it. That's every three seconds a child dies. Another one dies, and another one dies. And by the time we're done our service here, which might be a little longer than, than normal, but uh, pretty probably around 2,000 children have died while we kind of meet together here in this nice, cozy, comfy church with our well-fed bellies and all. I mean, it's a huge, stark contrast. When you di- divide up the whole world in terms of its food, uh, one quarter of the world eats three-quarters of the world's food. And that quarter, of course, is us. Uh, The next half of the world eats the last quarter of food, and the last quarter of the population gets nothing. Uh, There are almost three billion people in this world who live on less than $2 a day. Less than $2 a day. I mean... If you live in this country, you, you're basically at the cream of the crop in terms of the world's wealth. If you make more than $25,000 a year, you are in the top 10% of the 6.8 billion people who live on this earth. If you make more than 50000 a year, you are in the top 1%. I mean, we are amazingly rich compared to the rest of the world. Uh, when you just think about Even every 15 seconds, uh, a child dies because they simply don't have clean water. And sometimes we think about all this and as we, we, I mean, we're saddened by those statistics and we're like, oh man, that's that's hard to hear. But you know what? We don't really care. I mean, we can say, man, I, I hate that. It's so terrible. But I mean, how much of our actions go towards solving that or helping with that. I mean, that tells us if we, we actually care. And the reason we don't care a lot is exactly what he says, is because they're, they're not our kids. They're not the kids even of our country. Remember this last fall when uh, my neighbor Zach 
uh, nine-year-old kid died just in the night, uh, totally unexplained. He passed away during the night, but he was my neighbor. I didn't know him that well. Met him only a couple times because we just moved into the area. But uh, I remember when I heard that, I was just like, your heart just sinks because it's, it's your neighbor. I was like, man, I got to do something. Someone brought food over to them. And I mean, that was my neighbor. And that just, just killed me. Uh, if we hear about a kid, say, not in our neighborhood, but maybe just in the Kootenays, I mean, we'll probably have a little less passion than that. We Compassion, we might just go, yeah, it's really sad for that family. I mean, if someone in Ontario, we might feel, but have less. But when they're way over there, overseas, we can so easily just forget about it. And there's kind of a crass uh, proverb in the news world that says this. It says, one dead fireman in Brooklyn is worth five English bobbies, which is a police officer, who are worth 50 Arabs, who are worth 500 Africans. Pretty mean statement, but you know what? It's the way we live. I mean, I just saw in the news yesterday, big headline, two people die in a Russian airport accident, right? This big this news headline, yet every three seconds, a child is dying because of preventable poverty. And the issue is, we're just not very personal with the problem. Uh, so easily, we can kind of stand back, we can change the channel, we can just not think about it. Most of us probably will, even though we're going to talk about leave and day later, you're going to forget about it. I mean, we just don't make this personal. And this is where we need to work on having more of God's heart. God cares as much for a Brooklyn a fireman as he does an African. God cares as much for my neighbor Zach who died at nine and a child in Africa who dies at the age of nine. Uh, he cares as much for every single child on this planet. And we, we're to work on having that heart. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are not to uh, play favorites. Uh, James 2 says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? And we do this. I mean, we so favor kids in our own country to kids over the, overseas. And it's one of those things that we need to begin praying about is, God, would you, would you help me to have your heart in this matter? I mean, imagine if today 26,500 Canadian children died. Yet it happens. I mean, imagine if you on your way to church, opened up your door, and there on the doorstep was two kids who were dying of hunger. You wouldn't just walk over them. You would help them because all of a sudden it's personal. It's right there. And as a lot of advocates for poverty say, it's as simple as trying to make this more personal. Uh, Maybe we'll talk more about that in a moment. The Bible has a lot to say about Helping the poor. And uh, in fact, they say if you go through your Bible and you cut out every passage that deals with helping the poor or with the poor, basically you have 
Your Bible's in tatters. And we live that way as much of the church. Uh, Proverbs 21.13 says, and we're going to begin with Proverbs because we've been looking at Proverbs. It says, If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. It's kind of interesting because even in the New Testament it says concerning husbands and wives, it says, uh, Husbands, if you don't love your wives, your prayers may be hindered. If we don't love the poor, uh, it may actually hinder our prayers. Uh, Proverbs 14.31, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 22.9, A generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. Proverbs 28.27 says, he, gives, uh, he who gives to the poor will lack nothing, but he who closes his eyes to them receives many curses. Uh, the early church, this is kind of an interesting text in Galatians. It says, this is Paul writing to the church of Galatia. It says, they, and this would be the leaders of Jerusalem, agreed that we, that's Paul and his friends, should go to the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, uh, and they to the circumcised. Uh, and then it says this, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So here's Paul, he He's talking about doing this missionary work amongst the people who are non-Jews and the, the church of Jerusalem, the head honchos say, great. We need to tell people about Jesus, but they asked one other thing. It wasn't that you better have a cool worship band or you better have a nice church with a big sanctuary or you better have your constitution and bylaws all set up straight in case something goes on. Not that you should have an insurance policy. I mean, there's a zillion things that they could have said, but they said one thing. When people who don't know Jesus, tell them about Jesus, help the poor. That's kind of like the, the mission statement, almost, if you will, that they gave Paul. Save lost people, help the poor. And the North American church is so far from that, are we? I mean, we're like, yeah, telling people about Jesus, it's important, but even that we don't do that well. And when it comes to helping the poor... I mean, you look at it statistically, the average Christian in North America gives uh, about 2.5% of their income to, to the church. Uh, the Bible says 10% is kind of the starting place, but the average is about 2.5%, and that money goes to the church, and then the church takes it, we take it, uh, and the average church in North America gives 2% of that money to missions work and the poor overseas. Now, our church is a lot higher than 2%, but the average is 2 and so when you work it all out, the average Christian shows, throws about six cents a day towards this problem. Like 2% of 2% goes to help the poor. And the answer lies in the church. And I remember uh, uh, reading this story about this woman who was overseas holding these kids and they were dying in her arms and she cried out as we would cry out, God, why don't you do something? If you love these kids as much as my kids, God, why don't you do something? She cried out to God. She said, I heard so plainly God say, I have. It's called the church. But the problem is, as the old Mercy Me song goes, if we are the body, why aren't our arms reaching? Why aren't our hands healing? 
I mean, if Christians actually tithe in North America, there would be easily enough money to solve this problem. I mean, God has provided a solution, but we so easily get off mission and we forget about this. And so the early church was very focused. Paul said, I'm so eager to do this. He was reminded by the head honchos to do this. And it's probably something we've got to be working on more as a church and as individuals. Uh, another passage, Luke chapter 4. Jesus, as well, was part of his mission. Uh, one of his first appearances was this in, in, uh, in Nazareth. He said he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And so Jesus takes this kind of as his mission statement, as his opening statement for his ministry. He says, I am here to proclaim the good news to the poor, the gospel. That people need to hear about Jesus and poor people need to hear about Jesus. And then he says, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. This idea of compassion on those who are in prison and those who are blind and those who are oppressed. And then to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's almost a Jesus mission statement. I am here again to share the good news, but I'm going to have compassion. I'm going to help the poor as well. Of course, there's the famous Matthew 25 text that we can't miss. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, talking about the return of Jesus, when He comes back, which is going to happen, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And the idea is, when Jesus returns, there's going to be this judgment where every single person is going to stand before Jesus and give an account. So he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then it says, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, uh, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? They're standing for Jesus I never saw you hungry. I never saw you without clothes. I never saw you in prison. What are you talking about? And then he says in this famous famous statement, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now there's an argument here, theologically, and that is who is he talking about, right? 
Who are the brothers and sisters? One, one group says they're Christians, speaking about Christians. The other group says this is, this is anybody on this planet. So one group says Jesus is talking about the poor, hungry, and needy Christians. Another group says this is talking about everyone. And it doesn't matter either way. The reason being, there are hundreds of millions of Christians in this world who are hungry, who are in this category of what we're talking about. And even more so, Paul said in Galatians, he said, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And so we are to help our believers. That is, if you were a priority, but we are to help and serve all people. Meaning that when you are helping the poor, whether they are Christian or not, is you're doing this to Jesus. Now, the scary part is, of course, what he goes on to say. He says, and Jesus is not saying here that, that you are saved by helping the poor. He is saying basically that a saved person will help the poor. And we'll talk more about that in a second. He says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me. And it says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And I mean, this is powerful. I mean, Jesus was not saying, "Uh, let's find out who read the Bible every day or not. Could have said that. Or who went to church all the time. Jesus in the story particularly picks the poor. Now again, Jesus is not saying here, if you help the poor, you're saved. But the Bible is very clear that if you love Jesus and have been forgiven by Jesus, that we must help the poor. That it's not an option because He has loved us. We are to love. He has given to us. We are to give. And because of this passage, you just can't get around this. Whether you think it's directed at Christians or not. In fact, very clearly in the book of James, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And again, the illustration, it's not a bunch of stuff going to church, do you worship? It's its the poor. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The example is the poor. And the hard part is, we're, we're so close to dead faith when you think about it. At least when I really examine myself, and this is one of the things that's partly preached to me that I really need to change in my life. I mean, we tithe to the church. We also support three different missionaries overseas. But you know, we don't really give to the poor. And it's one of the ways 
small, tiny application to this is we're, we're sponsoring a couple kids and we're buying, we were looking through the Gospel for Asia. We're going to buy some Christmas presents from sheep and some chickens for some people. I mean, I mean we've got to act on this. We cannot sit back and do nothing when 26,500 children under the age of five die every day. And we don't see it again. We kind of push this away, but hey, can you imagine what God sees as he looks at this church and our riches and our nice car and our investments and all this stuff. And then he looks at a poor church in Africa where the Christians gather and they will walk three hours to get to a little church and they will be hungry. I mean, the greatest problem that some say in our world is the difference between the rich and the poor. It's huge. And we're in that rich category. Uh, Richard Stearns, he puts this text this way, kind of modern version. He says, For I was hungry while you had all you needed. I was thirsty, but you drank bottled water. I was a stranger and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. I was sick and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison and you said I was getting what I deserved. Perhaps the hardest text on this is this one, Isaiah 58. It says, Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion, and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. And it says this, like he's saying, We're going to declare your sin and your rebellion, but then he says this, For day to day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commandments of his God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. And that's us. I hope that's you. I mean, if that's not you, then you're really in trouble. I mean, I hope that you have an eagerness for God. I hope that you are asking God for wisdom and just decisions. I hope that you are seeking God out, but... Sometimes we just say, yeah, that's enough. As long as I'm seeking God, just me and God, we're fine. God was not fine with this at all, because he goes on. And this is a tough one. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. And, and maybe more applicable, we could sort of change that to the time when we gather for worship on Sunday, Right? Because not, not a lot of people fast anymore, right? When we gather together, right? It says, yet you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. And so, I mean, we do this. We come to worship and we say, yeah, Jesus, that was great. And yet, I see these little conflicts here and there. We get ticked off after people and there's bitterness and unfairness. We do the same thing. But that was not God's real problem. Uh, He goes on and says, is this the kind of fast I have chosen or is this the kind of worship service I want you guys to have? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? 
Is that what you call a fast? Or is that what you call a worship service? A day acceptable to the Lord? And then he says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? And what does he pick again? The poor. Not all these things that we think are so important. He picks the poor. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then, he says, your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. And this is what we want. I mean, we want our light to break forth like the dawn. And Jesus says, this is what you do. You help the poor and your light will break forth like the dawn, he says. And your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and then he finishes up and he says this. Man, this is hard. And... If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the new day. Man, this is what we want for our Christian lives, for our church, for our light to rise in this dark place. And one of the ways that attention is caught is when... We're able to do something. Could you imagine if the North American church decided all to get together, we're going to give to this, and all of a sudden the world's problems were solved in this area because of the church? Man, our light would shine, right? But he says this. If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry. This, this was hard when I was looking at this, because it doesn't say, uh, give a little bit. You know what we do? And probably most of us will sadly do. And I'm real tempted to do. So, yeah, that's a really convicting sermon. I better just do enough to get my guilt to wash it away so I don't feel guilty. Maybe I'll just do a little bit so at least I can say I'm doing something. He says, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the poor, and there's a challenge right there. I mean, how, how many of you are spending yourselves on behalf of the poor? Again, I'm talking about the world's poor, not North American poor. On these 26,500 children that die every day of preventable poverty. It's just kind of some of the things that God's been working in my heart. Another interesting passage. You know Sodom? (laughs) This is what Ezekiel says. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. We always think it's sexual stuff, which was part of it. But you know what God first points out? She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. You know what we do as Christians? We sit back and, well, some Christians at least do, they're sodomites. Those people, sodomites. No, we are sodomites. All of us. I'm overfed. Again, a quarter percent of the population, 25 percent of we eat three quarters of the food on this planet. Unconcerned? Yeah. Pretty unconcerned because they're not our kids, right? 
That was the sin of Sodom. Now, uh, the president of World Vision has this statement here as a kind of wrap up here. Uh, it's a good vision, but it's a hard statement. He says this. When historians look back in 100 years, what will they write about this nation of 340,000 churches? What will they say of the church's response to the great challenges of our time? AIDS, poverty, hunger, terrorism, war. Will they say that these authentic Christians rose up courageously and responded to the tide of human suffering? That they rushed to the front lines to comfort the afflicted and to douse the flames of the hatred? Will they write of the unprecedented outpouring of generosity to meet the urgent needs of the world's poor? Will they speak of the moral leadership and compelling vision of our leaders? Uh, He goes on and says, Will they write that this, the beginning of the 21st century, was the church's finest hour? Or will they look back and see a church too comfortable, insulated from the pain of the rest of the world, empty of compassion and devoid of deeds? Will they write about a people who stood by and watched while 100 million died of AIDS and 50 million children were orphaned? Of Christians who lived in luxury and self-indulgence while millions died for the lack of food and water? Will school children read in disgust about a church that had the wealth to build great sanctuaries but lacked the will to build schools, hospitals, and clinics? In short, will we be remembered as the church with a gaping hole in its Gospel. It's a tough statement right there. Now the question that always should come from this is like, and what in the world can I do? Uh, three quick things here. There's lots. And first thing is you've got to try to make world poverty personal. Uh, in Mark it says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. And if you always run from this, you will not have compassion for these kids. You need to make this more personal, meaning you need to read a book or something on this. There's some great books out there. One I just read was The Hole in Our Gospel. I mean, challenging book. When you see those commercials on TV that you just want to turn off because you don't want to deal with this, you watch them. Because this is what God sees every single second. And we can't just like, I just want to deal with that right now and go back to our comfy little lives. So, man, I love that. But we can't do that when this world is the way it is. You might want to sponsor a child. Um, you just got to make this more personal. You got to be obedient to God's word. Um, which means we've got to help the poor. Uh, if... You're not helping the poor. I would suggest that the Bible says that you're in sin. I'm in sin. That's one thing I'm going to change. You need to be obedient to God's word. And lastly, you just got to give. One of the things that we have that we can help with the most is not our time, it's our money. I mean, sometimes when you say, well, what can I do? They're way over there. I mean, I can't take a plane trip over there and help them. And I can't, that's, just, that's just way over there. Give of your money. It is the easiest way for us to help. And we can't just give to any organization. We can't just, you know, send a check over there because helping these poor people is extremely, extremely complex. 
you need to partner with organizations who know what they are doing. And I put some in your bulletin that you could kind of begin with. Uh, so many stories of this being messed up by Christians just sending money over and it is going to the wrong place. You need to give. We have the financial means to give. We are stinking rich compared to all people. And so we need to give to this. And uh, I just want to invite Kevin up and Tiffany. They're going to come and uh, just finish off here with a bit of uh, application.